You're listening to the Gates Church Podcast. For more information or to support this ministry, please visit thegates.org. I'm excited to announce today that uh, we'll be kicking off our new sermon series for the fall, which we've titled, When You Pray. When You Pray. Can you guys guess what our sermon series is going to be about? It's going to be about worship, yeah. Who said that? (laughs) Uh, It's going to be about prayer. And not just any type of prayer, though. We're going to be making our way systematically through what's come to be known as the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer. Um, And I know most of you have probably heard the Lord's Prayer many times. Most of us probably know it off by heart. And that's great. We should know our scripture off by heart. Um, But as uh, Timothy Keller writes, the Lord's Prayer may be the single set of words spoken more often than any other in the history of the world. Jesus Christ gave it to us as the key to unlock all the riches of prayer, yet it is an untapped resource partially because it is so familiar. And I think that's true because for many, the Lord's prayer has become pretty familiar, right? And, and, and as such, kind of a mundane mantra that, that, or mantra, is it mantra, mantra? Mantra that we just recite in church sometimes. It's, it's kind of lost its, its luster, maybe even lost some of its meaning when we say it or its depth for us when, when we say it. Um, but there's so much more to the Lord's Prayer. There's so much to the Lord's Prayer. So as we go through it over the next couple of months, I want to ask you all to do me a favor, actually do yourself a favor, and try to do your best to set aside your familiarity with it. Just <clears throat> set that aside. And try to make a humble effort instead to see it and understand it and engage with it through fresh eyes, so to speak. Can we, can we do that? Yeah? One person said yeah. And I think maybe someone moved over here. I don't know. <laughs> awesome. Glad to hear. Uh, that's, that's what I'm challenging myself with as I, as I research, research and study it and pray about it. Uh, over these next couple of months. Because no matter how good or bad at prayer we think we are, and no matter how much we think we understand it or, or how much we think we don't understand it, the reality is that prayer is and always will be one of the greatest mysteries of grace that God's given us. And, and that, that means that none of us has it all figured out, right? So we all need to submit ourselves to Jesus' teaching here again and again if we desire to mature as Christians and to grow in our relationship with God. And, and this seems to be the heart of the disciples in Luke 11, verse 1, which says this, Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. So the disciples, they'd been witnessing Jesus' prayer life. And we know from the Gospel accounts that Jesus often went aside and prayed on his own, but also he prayed for and with the disciples and also for healings and for miracles and casting out demons, and he prayed for God's will to be done. In other words, prayer was an important aspect for his life and his ministry. And so in this particular instance, after seeing Jesus praying, as he often does, one of the disciples asks Jesus, he says, just as John the Baptist taught his disciples, Lord, teach us also to pray. We see you praying. We see, we see John and his disciples praying. Teach us also to pray. Lord, teach us to pray. And this is the attitude 
that, that we'll need to have in this series as we go through it. A humble willingness to come to Jesus each and every Sunday, each and every time that we, that we, that we think about this and, and open the word. We should ask him, Lord, teach us to pray. And I know that if we do, it'll both be both refreshing and beneficial to us. And there's lots of reasons that it will be refreshing and beneficial. But I'm going to name three, three main reasons that I think um, having that attitude will be beneficial and learning, how, how, learning more about the Lord's Prayer will be beneficial to us. Um, the first reason it will be beneficial is that we'll hopefully be encouraged to pray more as individuals and as the church, that we'll pray more. First Thessalonians 5.17 says, Pray continually. Some translations say pray without ceasing, which is implying a constant attitude of, of seeking God in prayer. In other words, we're called as Christians to pray, and to pray a lot, to pray continually. But we know that already, right? We know as Christians that we're supposed to pray all the time. Sometimes we feel guilty because we haven't prayed that much or whatever, right? We, we know we're supposed to pray. So let's be honest with ourselves here. I don't need a show of hands or anything. I don't want to embarrass anybody. But is anyone here really satisfied with their prayer lives? My guess and my general assumption is that unless we're Jesus, we could all use a little more prayer. Check that a lot more prayer in our lives and in this church. I definitely do. So I hope that as we learn more about how to pray, more about what it means to pray, as we learn it straight from the words of Jesus Christ himself, I hope that we'll be able to move past our hesitations and our reservations and our obstacles and our doubt about prayer or whatever it is that keeps us from praying and instead be more willing and excited to do it and to do it continually. So this, and this, I, this prospect, this idea gets me excited because a community in prayer is always the prerequisite for a great move of God. It's always the prerequisite for a great move of God, for salvations, for church health and, and unity, for, for church growth, whether that's theologically, spiritually, numerically. We need to be a people of prayer. So that's one reason I think it'll be beneficial to go through this series. Another reason I'm looking forward to going through the Lord's Prayer with you guys is that even though it's generally regarded as a short guide for how to pray, it actually says a lot about who God is and who we are, and what that relationship looks like. And so I'm excited uh, to go through that, as we'll be encouraged and challenged by that. And another reason I believe it'll be beneficial to us concerns something I'm always blown away by when I read the Lord's Prayer. And maybe it's something that we, that we forget, or something we tend to overlook when we read through the Lord's Prayer, or when we recite the Lord's Prayer, which is that Jesus himself is the answer to every facet of the Lord's Prayer. Jesus himself is the answer to every part of it. In fact, the gospel message is oozing out of and and layered within uh, every point in the prayer. And so I'm looking forward, above all, to being reminded of of this and, and showing you this. And of course, learning then how our prayer life should also be saturated with the promise and hope of what Jesus has already accomplished for us in his death and resurrection. So my hope and, yes, my prayer is that as we go through this series over the next couple of months, that the Spirit of God will work in your hearts and minds and, and give each of us, including myself, a deeper understanding of the depths, the riches, and the importance of this short but profound lesson which Jesus taught to his disciples that, that will be encouraged, challenged, excited, and yes, even convicted to not only get on our knees in prayer more often, but that we'll be more confident in doing it. So let's turn right now to Matthew 6. 
5 to 13. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me. It'll also be on the screen up there. I'm also going to be reading from a different translation than you guys are probably used to, and I'm doing that on purpose because right off the get-go, I want to cut through your familiarity. So the wording is going to be a little bit different so that it just feels different, right? So Matthew 6, 5 to 13. It says, when you pray, this is Jesus speaking to his disciples, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. They love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners so that people will see them. I assure you, that's the only reward they'll get. But when you pray, go to your room, shut the door, and and pray to your Father who is present in that secret place. Your Father who sees what you do in secret will reward you. And when you pray, don't pour out a flood of empty words as the Gentiles do. They, They think that by saying many words, they'll be heard. Don't be like them. Because your Father knows what you need before you ask. Pray like this. Our Father, who is in heaven, uphold the holiness of your name. Bring in your kingdom so that your will is done on earth as it's done in heaven. And give us the bread we need for today. Forgive us for the ways we have wronged you, just as we also forgive those who have wronged us. And don't lead us into temptation, but rescue us from the evil one. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that we could come before you today as a body of Christ and and dig into your word, Lord, and and learn more about who you are and and how you've called us to, to talk with you and commune with you, Lord God. I pray that you would open our hearts to receive what you have for us this morning and that you'd be glorified through. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so Jesus starts his lesson about prayer with three words, three simple words. It's the title of our sermon series, When You Pray. Notice how he doesn't say, if you pray, or when you feel like praying, right? but rather, when you pray. The assumption is that Jesus' disciples will pray, which means that the question for us in this series is not whether we should or shouldn't pray, And neither is it the subject of Jesus' lesson here. That part is assumed we should pray. As Christians, we should be praying. Albert Muller Jr. writes, Jesus expects his disciples to pray. With this opening phrase, he does nothing short of commanding them to do so. A failure to pray is therefore not only a sign of anemic spiritual life, it is disobedience to Christ. Moreover, it is also one of the primary means by which we commune with the living God. Prayer is central to the Christian life and interwoven throughout the biblical text, telling us to pray and instructing how to. In Scripture, it is unthinkable that a true disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ would not pray. So in other words, the question for us is not should we pray, but rather it's how should we pray. Same question the disciples ask, and Jesus tells us. But before Jesus even gets to the words we speak, it seems like he wants to ensure that we, that we have the right posture for prayer. Not the physical posture per se, but, but the posture of our hearts and our minds. The right motive, right, as, as, we, as we prepare to approach the presence of God. 
And it's this portion of Jesus' lesson that I'm going to be focusing on for the remainder of my message today. And it begins with two do-nots. Two do-nots, which kind of sounds like I said donuts, doesn't it? Uh, And maybe that's just because they're on my mind, because when I was on the cruise ship, I started every morning with a Krispy Kreme donut. Um, Since I could, they were there. But alas, this is different and much more beneficial. Um... And healthier. So two do nots or don'ts. We'll call them don'ts. So I stopped thinking about donuts. The don'ts. Again, Jesus says to them, so he says to them, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites and don't be like the Gentiles who heap up empty phrases. And the underlying theme that Jesus seems to be getting across for us here is that prayer is not a performance. If you're taking notes, you need to write that down. Prayer is not a performance. This is both a warning for those who might be tempted to make it a performance, but, it, but it's also a relief, right? It's also a relief for those who might feel pressured that they have to make it one. And I'll say more about that in a bit, but that's why he says off, right? Right off the bat in verse 5, Jesus says, When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. They love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners so that people will see them. I assure you, that's the only reward they'll get. So Jesus is most likely referring here to to some of the Pharisees who would, not all the Pharisees, just some of the Pharisees who would flaunt their piety for all to see. Their motivation wasn't primarily to to seek God, but to stroke their ego and and their pride, right? So they stood and prayed out in the open where people would see them, uh, primarily to impress everyone with their their self-righteousness, to put on a show for all who saw them so that everyone can marvel at how holy and religious and and impressive they were with, with how they prayed and, oh, so wonderful. That look, at, look at them pray. I wish I was like them, right? That's what they wanted people to think. Like a modern-day celebrity prosperity pastor, right? They really just wanted recognition from men. They wanted celebrity status, as if that would make God impressed. So on the outside, they looked holy and impressive, but on the inside, their hearts were hardened with pride and self-righteousness. So that's the very definition an example of hypocrisy. And Jesus is blunt here. He says, if that's their goal, he says, to impress others, that's what they want, that will be their only reward. That's what they want, that's what they'll get. That's what Jesus says. And, and while it's easy to poke fun at these Pharisees or, or celebrity pastors or whatever, this is certainly a temptation for us as well, isn't it? It's a temptation for us, especially when we're praying in public or, or praying as a group, right? It's human nature human nature to want to impress others, to worry about what others think of us, to to want people to notice, to want people to think we're awesome sauce, right? That's that's the pressure. So when when we know people are listening to us pray, we you know, we'll naturally put on that prayer voice, right? You know the prayer voice? And we'll start speaking in old English. Right? Well mixing in a couple of big theology words you don't actually understand. Right? Thou, Lord, we thank thee for thine son, that he will be the perspiration of my grace. I don't know, right? We start, we start saying stuff like that. I don't even know what's going on. Maybe, maybe while we're doing that, we'll, maybe we'll occasionally open our eyes a bit, you know, while we're praying that prayer. See if anyone's noticing, right? 
See if anyone's marveling at all at our oratorical skills, theological knowledge, whatever, right? The problem there is obvious. <laughs> the problem there is obvious. Prayer is supposed to be about placing our attention on God, right? That's what prayer is supposed to be. It's about looking to God, placing our attention on God, not on ourselves. So Jesus is reminding the, the, his disciples to check their motive. He's, he's reminding them that our, that our prayer times aren't meant to, to be a tool to impress others with our eloquence of speech or our self-righteousness or our self-proclaimed piety. It's not a performance for the masses. It's, it's, it's not about making ourselves look good compared to others as well. Right? It's about humbly and genuinely communing with the living God. And as I said earlier, this is good news for those who, who aren't confident in prayer or for those who avoid praying altogether because they just can't help but be worried about what other people think or about being worried that someone will judge them if they speak up in prayer. Like if you're at a prayer meeting or something, you stay quiet because you're worried that, oh, I'm going to sound stupid. If, if I pray right now, people will judge me for the way I pray. So it's a, it's a relief on that end, because, because if that's the case, if we are thinking that way, we are thinking the same way as the hypocrites. Right? We're thinking prayers about performance. But according to Jesus' words here, those fears or pressures are, are needless, right? Because this, this means we don't have to be like the hypocrites. We don't have to impress anyone when we pray. We don't have to sound holier than thou in front of others when we pray. We can simply pray. And this seems to be Jesus' point when he goes on to say in verse 6, But when you pray, go to your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is present in that secret place. Your Father who sees what you do in secret will reward you. So by suggesting we, we, we go off and spend alone time with God, he's removing both the temptation and the pressure we might have to impress others. And instead he's underlying the importance of coming to God as we are, with a genuine heart, because that's where our reward from God is found. Psalm 51, 16 and 17 reflects this attitude in prayer. It says, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O oh God, you will not despise. A broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. So only God knows the secret depths of our hearts. Right? Again, it's easy to impress others, to put on a show, to trick others into thinking that we're super holy and that, and that our heart's you know, set on the Lord or whatever. It's easy to draw attention to ourselves and make sure everyone notices when we pray. But no matter how much others might be impressed or how much they might be unimpressed, no matter how convincing we might look to them or not, only God knows where we're at. God knows if we're genuine, and that's what matters. And when it's just me and God, when it's just me and God, that's where it's most real. Right? That's when I can be most real and honest and open and vulnerable. And what I mean by that, too, is that how we pray and how often we pray when we're alone says more about who we are and says more about our relationship with God than it does when we do it in public. The Puritan John Owens once wrote, he said, A minister may fill his pews, his communion role, the mouths of the public. But what, the, what that minister is on his knees in secret before God Almighty 
that he is and no more. So this is a conviction for me every time that I see this quote, every time I read the, or hear it or read it or whatever, but we could easily replace that word with word minister with Christian for the same effect. Right? A Christian could come to church, a Christian could worship loudly in church, whatever. You can name all the things, but what that Christian is on, on his or her knees in secret before God Almighty, that's who they are. Who we are on our knees in secret before God is who we are. So this is an opportunity for self-reflection. What's, first of all, what's our motive when we pray? What's our motive when we pray? To please others or, or to seek after God? And in the same vein, what's our private prayer life like? What's our private prayer life like? Because that says a lot about where we are in our relationship with God. So again, that's Jesus' first warning and advice here when it comes to prayer. Don't be like the hypocrites who pray to impress others. And the second warning is like it. He says, don't, basically says, don't pray to try to impress God. So we don't pray to impress others and we don't pray to try to impress God. Verse 7 says, when you pray, don't pour out a flood of empty words as the Gentiles do. They think that by saying many words, they'll be heard. For some people, this might be a temptation, right? To, to, to be wordy in their, in their prayers. Um, keep a flood of empty words. But I believe there's more, more to what Jesus is saying here than just that. Because I think it is a temptation for most of us, whether we're wordy or not, to think that we have to somehow impress God. To somehow impress God with the way that we pray, as if that's uh, the only way he'll be coerced into hearing us or, or helping us or something like that, right? So maybe we make deals with God. Like, God, if you do this, then I promise to do this, right? If you do this, I promise to go to church more, or I promise to, to tithe more, or whatever it is, right? We, we try to make deals with God. Or maybe we proclaim empty religious mantras, or, or, or we, we hum, or, or whatever we, we do, right? But that's not how it works, we don't need to, to ramble on and on for him to hear us. We don't need to use big theological words we don't understand for, for him to, to, to accept us. We don't need to say the words, Lord just, Lord just, Lord just, Lord just, Lord just, every 10 seconds when we're praying, right? We don't need to, because we do that. That's, that's a habit that our, for some reason our Christian culture has. We say Lord just, Lord just, over and over again. I don't know why we do that. We, why is it just? <laughs> right? Anyways, he's just, but anyways, what am I talking about? We don't need to do, <laughs> we don't need to do a bunch of good works to, to gain his ear, right? We, we don't need to please him with, the, with our offerings so he rewards us. We, you get the point. In 2 Kings 18, there's an account where, where the prophet Elijah is confronted with 450 other prophets of this false god who they call Baal. His name Baal, who, which might be the name of the god or it might be a generic name for a false god. Not sure. So anyway, it doesn't matter. So Elijah challenges them. He challenges them to basically what's, what's a, a duel of the gods. That's what's happening. And the challenge was to call upon their own god to, to, to bring some fire and to burn some offerings that they'd set out. So best god wins. This is the challenge. It's like the first reality show, right? It's this, this is the challenge that's happening. Okay, and so the prophets of Baal are like, we're going to go first because we're, we're more important. And, and it says that from morning till noon, these 450 prophets, they're all, they're all together, 
Then they called upon their God, 450 of them. Oh, Baal, answer us. They're, they're, they're screaming. And they dance and they leaped around their altar and they're, and they're, they're cutting themselves with knives. And, and they made quite a show of it, trying to impress and be heard by their God. But Elijah, he's sitting there all by himself. And he thinks this is quite hilarious, watching this, this show happen before him. And so he starts to taunt them. And sarcastically, he says to them, as it says in verse 27, he says, oh, you'll have to shout louder. He scoffed, for surely he is a god. Perhaps he is daydreaming or is relieving himself, maybe. Or, or maybe he is away on a trip or, or is asleep and needs to be wakened. So he's just taunting them. And, and, and so, so they get angry and things get even crazier and, until evening when they, when they finally quit. They finally give up, which is when Elijah calls on God in faith through a simple prayer, basically asking God to show his glory and power so that everyone would know that he's the holy God. And then God responds with the burning fire from heaven. Our God wins. Now, God inspired Elijah to do that. So I'm not suggesting that we should run to some other temple after the service and challenge them to uh, a duel of the gods. Unless God tells us to specifically. Uh, but the point here is that these Gentiles are, are shouting and, and wailing and leaping around, thinking, thinking that this is what it takes doing all this crazy, rambunctious stuff, thinking that this is what it takes to be heard. That would, that would suck if that's what it took to be heard, right? And they won't be heard, especially if this fake God is busy relieving himself, right? And, and it's these types of Gentiles that Jesus is, is reminding us to avoid mimicking because there's no point to this. We, as Christians, we don't have to pray like that. We don't have to pray like that. Not that praying for a long time is bad. If we're praying from morning till evening, that's fine. That's not bad. That's, that's good. We should be constant in prayer, right? But G- Jesus is negating prayers that are long-winded. He's saying we don't have to pray like that for God to hear us. Babbling on and on, shouting louder and louder, heaping on, heaping on empty phrases, trying to make deals with God, right? Because as Jesus says in verse 8, he says, don't be like them. Why? Because your father... Knows what you need before you ask. God already knows what we need. He cares that much. He already knows. But I think we often forget that, don't we? So I think we do have a tendency to to ramble on and on in prayer, telling God what we think we need. And as a result, we fail to spend enough time meditating through the word and listening in prayer to the one who actually knows what we need. So again, God's not waiting for the right amount of words until he listens to us. He already does hear us. He knows our need before we even ask. When we pray then, it has nothing to do with our performance. It has nothing to do with our performance. It's simply about humbly seeking after and surrendering to God as we are. It's about humbly seeking after and surrendering to God as we are. C.S. Lewis writes, C.S. Lewis writes, The prayer preceding all prayers is, May it be the real I who speaks. May it be the real thou that I speak to. It's that simple. No performance. No dressing to impress. Just the real me communing with the real God. And the bottom line here, though, which I want to emphasize 
as I close this morning, is that the reason we don't need to make ourselves worthy, we don't need to put on a performance, we don't need to make ourselves amazing in the sight of others or in the sight of God in order to commune with God, because Jesus alone has already accomplished this for us on our behalf. Right? Jesus died on the, on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins as a perfect sacrifice. He conquered the grave so that we could become covered in his righteousness. In other words, Jesus has already made us worthy in the sight of God. Jesus has given us access to God. Jesus and his Holy Spirit within us reorients our hearts so that we can approach God fully justified in his sight. So we don't have to toil and strive. We don't have to impress. Right? Through the grace and blood of Christ, we're already there. Through the grace and blood of Christ, we're already there. And now we just get to surrender and seek him in faith. First Timothy 2, verse 5 says, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. It's Jesus stands in that gap between us and God. And then Hebrews 4, verse 14 to 16, in response to that reality, says, Since then we have a great high priest, Jesus, who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So because of Jesus, again, not our performance or our self-righteousness or how holy or not other people think we are. None of that matters. Because of Jesus, by his grace alone, we get to come before the throne of grace with confidence. With confidence and have communion with God in prayer. Of course, this is also what we remember when we take communion as well, and we'll be receiving that now, and the band can come up. But before we receive communion, I want to mention something that's along the same lines of what we just learned about prayer this morning, um, which is that Paul also reminds us in 1 Corinthians to check our motive before we take the Lord's Supper as well. So 1 Corinthians 11, 26 to 29 says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's what we remember. That's what we proclaim when we take communion. So then he says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. So in a moment, I'm going to invite you to receive communion on your own this morning, if you'd like to do that. And the reason I'm inviting you to take it on your own this morning as individuals is because I want to give each of you an opportunity to pray in private. To pray in private for as long or as short as you need. First of all, to humbly thank God for the grace and glory of salvation that we've received through Jesus' death and resurrection, but also so that you can take some time to examine yourselves, to check your motive, so that when you do come 
and receive the bread that represents Jesus' body that was broken for us. So that when you do come and receive the cup that represents his blood that was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. You do so not because it's what we do. Not because everyone else is doing it. Not because you're perfect. Not because you want to impress others by fitting in or because you want to look holy or whatever it is. But that you do so because your hearts are genuinely set on and surrendered to the Lord. So take some time right now. Pray in private. Pray on your own. Thank Jesus for what he's done. And then examine yourselves. Ask him to, to, to examine your hearts. And then come and receive the body and the blood of Christ.